Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our From the Trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have uh, Stephen McNair uh, with us from McNair Historic Preservation. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, Tell me your background. How did you get started in preservation? Sure. So, uh, so I am from Mobile, Alabama, and uh, and I got started in historic preservation uh, by interning with the Mobile Historic Development Commission when I was uh, in high school and then summers in, in college, and uh, that led me to understand that that could become uh, a legitimate career, and uh, that led me to uh, Tulane University where I received a master's in historic preservation architecture and uh, worked in New Orleans uh, uh, immediately following Hurricane Katrina for about five years um, in the world of um, uh, development and historic tax credits and government relations and all those kind of things. I actually worked for a private firm and worked for the city at one point. Uh, and then that led me to uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, actually, where I received a, a, a doctorate in architectural history and taught architecture at the University of Edinburgh and uh, moved back to the United States about five years ago and uh, opened up my firm. That that sounds like an exciting career and places that are, you know, I'm sure they were great to live in because they're great to visit. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah, I, I yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I miss both places, but at the same time, it's nice to be back in the South where at least we have days over 70 degrees uh so oh yes that would be that would be the challenge (laughs) (laughs) so um how did you start your business you moved back you moved back to the u.s and you just decided to go out on your own and or was there was there a catalyst no, I, I looked at the market, and, and I thought about moving back to New Orleans, and, they, and there were already quite a few historic preservation consulting firms and uh, consultants who were established in the city, and you know, I thought about partnering with one of them or maybe trying to open up my own shop, but, but then I looked back in my home state of, of Alabama and realized that there was, there was a real market there. There was a real demand because there was a, uh, a lack of understanding in the development community and also at the municipal level in terms of of uh, downtown development, historic tax credits, different incentives. There was just kind of a, a, of a blank canvas. And, um, and my returning back home also coincided with the passage of an, an Alabama historic tax credit program, which our state had never had before. So it really coalesced into the perfect timing of coming back home and introducing something new to, to the state uh, while also uh, being on the front end of a new program uh, of incentives for developers. 
So, and I think you mentioned in your email to me that you were you helped w- with the passage of the of the um, Alabama tax credit. Is that correct? Or that's correct. Uh, we, worked, okay. we worked on the language uh, and 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 helped. I'd say tangentially the first time, but the problem when I say the first time, so our state had a program and. Uh, then it went away, and it went away because there was a misunderstanding of how to use it. There was a uh, misunderstanding of how to make it benefit communities other than the large municipalities, such as Birmingham. And so our state legislature actually ended the program, and that's where um, our firm really helped, um, with quite a few partners, of course, uh, uh, helped right. um, write the new legislation, uh, lobby the members of the, of the House and Senate, and actually get it passed, and it's a much better program. Uh, and so we, we were really hands-on in that process. I, I think that that's a challenge for most states, especially with you know huge you know huge um, uh, municipalities and and you know urban areas where you know the de- developers might understand those programs a little bit better than the rural areas, and then all the money goes. I know in Pennsylvania, you know most of the money goes into Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. So yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I, I could see that being a challenge, and it's probably a challenge you know across the country. There's, there's no question. And one of the ways yeah. that the new program uh, addresses that, which I was skeptical of at first, but actually it's worked out quite well, is that for the first two quarters of every calendar year, uh, 40% of the annual allocation for Alabama historic tax credits are reserved for counties uh, that are deemed rural, which Alabama has 67 counties, and of those 67, 60 are deemed rural. And right. so uh, they have first dibs on that money. And then if they don't use it, then after the second quarter, it rolls into the the pot where anybody can can apply for it, but uh, I, I think this is something that would be beneficial uh, not only in, um, in in places like Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana, but but across the country. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there there are even you know in the in the areas that I mean, we've worked in southern New Jersey, and you would not guess that that's part of part of New Jersey. You know, it's all farmland. <laughs> you know, but it, it, sure. it doesn't. Yeah. So I, it, every every state has that. I'm sure. So what what services do you do you offer? So our firm is a is a national historic preservation consulting firm, and when I say national, we have clients ranging from North Adams, Massachusetts, to uh, the French Quarter in New Orleans. You know, we, we're based in Mobile, but we have a, a Montgomery office as well. And uh, we, we focus uh, primarily on the southeast with large clients in Chattanooga, Atlanta, Birmingham, New Orleans. But, uh, but we definitely travel. And, uh, and our, our package is comprehensive in that, you know, it's almost twofold. Where there's, there, there's the municipal and government side where we help municipalities with National Register Historic Districts, um, we help with 106 reviews for um, uh, different municipalities and different entities. And then, uh, but the day-to-day really focuses more on securing federal and state historic tax credits and working hand-in-hand with developers, architects, and contractors uh, to shepherd the project from idea to completion um, while staying compliant uh, for all the incentives. Right, right. Yeah. So are the majority of your, like on the private side, the majority of your clients are like, People who are developing um, historic properties for commercial use—is that would that be accurate? Yes, yes, and okay. we handle all everything from tax abatements and ad valorem reductions to uh, listing properties either individually or within a district on the national register, and then of course uh, the federal historic tax credit program. And, and we're familiar with at least a dozen of the state programs, so we um, we really uh, try to handle everything from from idea to, to completion. 
that's that's great because I know that it it gets really hard as you're if you try to you know piecemeal that and pass it off to other people and you know things if there's not if there's not good communication you know the the process is not easy. I completely agree, and we get yeah, a lot of work yeah. from people that either try it on their own and fail, and we have to kind of back clean up, or you know they hire the wrong person who doesn't really know what they're doing, and and uh, you know these 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 programs take a lot of patience and a lot of time and a lot of negotiating with you know local, state, and and federal reviewers and entities. So you you've really got to have the right folks who understand this process and can give you a realistic timetable as well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does take time. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 I noticed that on your website you offer economic incentive consultation. What is that? I wasn't sure exactly what that what that was. We try to do some due diligence for free on the front end for clients, and that's really where we identify what the property is currently eligible for, what it could be eligible for, um, and and we sit down and and before we. Sign papers or really do anything. We just like to make sure that everybody understands what's on what's at stake and what's on the table. And so, if if somebody comes to me and says that they want to, you know, tear down half of an old building and put something new there, and I know it's not going to work, we don't even, you know, we don't take their money. Right. You know, we it's just, not a good fit. We, yeah. No. Nah, so so we try to do all that up front. It really is a courtesy uh, to prevent somebody from going down a path that's not going to work. Right. Yeah. And so, is that looking for like um, also like any grants or tax credits or anything like that, like funding options? Yes. Yeah, we try to put together okay. a, a comprehensive list of, of what is at stake, uh, depending on the, the property itself and then the vision for the adaptive reuse or the rehabilitation of the property. So, so what do you find are the biggest, biggest obstacles um, in planning uh, preservation projects? The largest obstacles uh, are dealing with the um, the lack of connectivity and continuity between the local reviewers, state reviewers, and federal reviewers. Um, I mean, as you know, just because your local historic commission approves something, that doesn't mean that the SHPO is going to approve it. And just because right. the SHPO approves something doesn't mean that the National Park Service is going to approve it. And and so that's a complicated process to to explain to developers and property owners who, um, who have money on the line or they have um, – you know, they have bank loans they have to secure. They have uh, construction budgets they have to take care of. They have quotes and estimates that are only good for a certain amount of time. And so we really try to work as hard as we can to prevent what I call kind of an, this endless review loop that you can get caught in. Oh, where, yeah. Um, you know, where no one is really communicating well and everybody is saying that they're right. And at the end of the day, <laughs> you're just kind of, you know, waiting on a decision to be made and, um you know, we, we see this from time to time, and so typically what we try to do is, um, is work with the SHPO the best we can, but really they're just giving us their best guess on what will work um, right. since the National Park Service is the ultimate decision maker. And so we, we work with the SHPO as best we can, and, and, and we listen to their comments, um, but at the same time we understand that they're just guessing like we are. Um, and right, everybody's the making Park- their best guess, right. That's right. And with the National Park Service being understaffed and overworked and, um, you know, their reviews are becoming much longer than they used to be. It's no longer, you know, used to, there was a window where you could expect a return within about 30 to 60 days. And um, that is absolutely not the case anymore. And, oh. um, you know, we're, we're seeing things held up in, in, uh, in Washington for three months and uh, things at the state level held up longer. So there's, um, there, there's, there's, uh, 
you know, there, there's a lot of issues there that we try to overcome by getting it right the first time best we can. Right. So you don't have to at least, you know that weight up front, and then you don't have to, you know, go through it a second time if it doesn't get approved. That makes sense to me. But I, I, when you said that, I hadn't realized that the wait was so long now during the review process, and I'm thinking that's, you know, that's really putting the brakes on a lot of development and money that could be flowing if, you know, if they could get the review process. It seems pretty short-sighted to me. Uh, there's no question, especially when you have a yeah. tenant that has a deadline, and and uh, and, I, and I fully appreciate having been a, a former uh, employee at the state level and the local level. I fully appreciate the fact that reviewers really aren't supposed to take financial um, uh, uh, the, the, with the finances of any project uh, into right. consideration. Uh, however, there is a realistic side to this that I feel like some basic training of understanding how construction loans work and um, how the bid process can work would really help them understand why they get a lot of angry phone calls. Because um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a tremendous disconnect of the realities of, of how a project comes together versus the aesthetics of reviewing a design. Um, right. And, th- and that also uh, goes hand in hand with code issues and with the realities of materials where you might have a reviewer in Washington say, well, why don't you just move this door and why don't you just move this one thing or two, which then could increase your budget by $100,000 or maybe from an engineering standpoint might even be impossible or improbable. And, right. uh, and so there's, there, is a, there is a real disconnect between the realities of, of a lot of the nuts and bolts of these buildings versus uh, a, a drawing that's being reviewed. Well, and it, they're at a disadvantage too because they haven't seen the site. I think That's that no makes question. a big yeah. difference. Yeah, because if you're just looking at if you're just looking at the drawings, you don't necessarily realize, you know, every you know everything that you're working around. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, in a perfect yeah. world, you know, the SHPO would have plenty of staff and time to visit every project and really give a a proper assessment, as opposed to just looking at photographs. Um, but, right. You know, that's just not uh, that's not in the cards for the for the immediate no. <laughs> so, do you have any tips for people who are are planning a, a preservation project or, or wanting to you know do an adaptive reuse that would be a commercial space? Yeah, you got to have the right team. You know that that's the that's the way to make these projects happen. You've got to be patient. You've got to listen to the SHPO, listen to the Park Service, be willing to negotiate. Because there's no such thing as a perfect project. They always have some comment on something. So um, right. be willing to have a plan B pretty much for any kind of tenant space. Um, but having the right team will make the difference. And, and when I say that, what I mean is you, you have to have a contractor who understands how to deal with uh, maybe doing sensitive demo and then uh, sensitive rehabilitation of windows or any kind of historic fabric. You have to have a, an architect that understands how to maneuver the fine line between ADA and life safety code compliant issues while also maintaining the character of the building. Um, you've got to have the right consultant to help all this move through the process. You've got to have the right developer who understands timelines and how to be patient. So you, you, you just got to have the right team. Um, you know, I see a lot of these where somebody's uncle is the contractor and they don't know what they're doing or they try to, you know, just hire draft, draftsmen to do the drawings and they don't really know what right. they're doing. So you spend a little more to have the right team, but what it does is it expedites the process, so then the project is finished faster, so you make money faster. Right, yeah, and, and yeah, when we're talking to homeowners and they, um, you know, I tell, you know, we talk about, you know, 
not only you know hiring the right contractor, but also making sure that the architects and the engineers that you contract with have a background in working in, in existing and historic buildings because otherwise they're going to weigh over engineer or they're going to do designs that aren't compatible. You know, it right. does. It makes a big difference if you if you get people who are sensitive and and know they're not learning on your projects. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, is there anything you wish you knew um, that you when you got started that you know now? Uh, yeah, there's, I think it's just institutional knowledge that has to be built up. You know, I wouldn't say there's one or two key factors that I'm looking back on, but, um, it's just a matter also, just like I said, the developer has to be patient. The, 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 the consultants do as well, because the rules do seem to fluctuate state to state and, and from, even at the federal level, you know, I, right. depending on, sometimes I feel like the weather, asked, you yeah. get different, you know, <laughs> responses, but so, so just knowing how to, how to tame the expectations of your client um, as opposed because they're going to walk in and say, I hear there's free money on the table and you're going to say, uh, well, there is, but you have to jump through these hoops. And, and, uh, and also the being able to walk away from a client because, you know, I can't tell you how many clients say, you know, what do you mean I have to keep these windows or what do you mean I have to do a certain feature? And I tell them all the time, well, you don't have to, but you're asking for free incentives from the from the taxpayers. Right. And so you have an option. You, in my left hand is a million dollars, and in my right hand are windows. You choose. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can choose you know? what's most important. <laughs> so you know, having the the confidence and the and the institutional knowledge to be able to 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 say that kind of stuff to a developer and make sure that their expectations from the very beginning is very clear of what they're going to have to keep and what they're going to have to get rid of or whatever, you know, the case. But um, so looking back, you know, maybe I was a little more um, overly optimistic on how fast some of these projects would move forward on the, you know, in my younger years. Um, right. And, and especially now with this, uh, uh, the, the current uh, in Department of the Interior budget, you know, they're just, they're just really overworked um, and, right. and understaffed. Yeah. And so, having to limit it even more now um, in terms of uh, timelines and things like that. But, um, but just having a realistic understanding of, of, of how this process can be very complicated and frustrating, but also extraordinarily rewarding, of course. I mean, that's the, the great thing about this is that without these credits and incentives, um, these projects don't happen. You know, there's right. – um, yeah. I, I, back when I worked for the, for, the, for the government, I used to think that people did these projects just because they loved old buildings. Well, they, they – they do, but they also really love being able to um, to not go into severe debt to do them. Um, right. Yeah. And and that's the balance of of uh, of being a building hugger while also understanding you know the realities of finances. Yeah, and I I think that 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 is a balance, and and it is to the the public benefit to. You know, retain these buildings and re- and be able to reuse them. And and you know, it's you know, I I know that you know all these things, but you know, it is a green option also. And I think that that's right. Pe- people it, and so it is. It's a it's a public benefit to get those get to to have those incentives. It's not just it's not just the you know the economic side, which makes sense right. as to why you know why we have prioritized that, and more and more states are starting to prioritize that too. So. Yeah, that that that's what's really yeah. um, you know rewarding about this is that we're seeing there was a there was a time you know 15 years ago when so many preservationists were just kind of on an island, 
And, right. and now we're, we're starting to really see the mainstream understand what we've been talking about and why we've been uh, trying to implement historic design guidelines and implement all these um, programs and, and code issues when it comes to preserving and protecting a downtown or even not a downtown, just any historic building. You know, people are starting to really see the benefit here. And that's, that is very rewarding to go into these smaller communities who uh, are starting to say, you know, look, we, we re- really regret putting all our emphasis on the interstate exit. Now we're going to emphasize downtown. It's, a, it's like a generational shift is occurring, which is a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> um, let's see. So what are the biggest challenges or trends that you see in preservation? Is it the more mainstream adapting, or is there something else that, that you've seen? <laughs> Uh, the, the trends right now, I'd say downtown multi, multifamily housing um, uh, in urban centers, you know, that people cannot uh, build apartments fast enough in, in quite right. a few places, whether it's, you know, Charlotte or Chattanooga or Atlanta. I mean, it's just, you know, there is no limit to the amount of multifamily that's going in. Uh, and uh, it, it's really fun to see the trend where finally I'm seeing a lot of mainstream corporations and and um, the engineering firms and different kind of office spaces where 10, 20 years ago, they, they were absolutely looking to, to be in a, a strip mall, you know, 20 minutes outside of any kind of urban center. And now yes. these are the groups saying, you know what, our employees want to be downtown. They want to be able to walk to lunch. They want to be able to, um, you know, actually do something after work and not have to drive. And so a lot of these companies that I would have never thought would, would come back to an urban center are buying old automobile dealerships and old municipal buildings and old churches and, and doing really great things with them. And, and, and part of that is a real demand by the workforce. You know, the, the, the boss right, may yeah. not understand it, but the workforce is saying, look, we're, we're younger and we don't want to have to drive 20 minutes to go to a McDonald's. We want to walk five minutes to a nice restaurant. Um, so that's really refreshing to see that trend. Yeah, and I've I've seen that in Lancaster too. You know, and the, the, I think there was one in the paper a, a few few weeks ago, maybe that was you know the company had moved into the suburbs 50 years ago, and now they're moving back downtown. So you know, it is it, right, it, it's, it's, right. it is changing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely changing. So I know you talked about like your business is national and and the different things. Is there anything? that makes your business different from similar businesses or um there there is a, a lot of consultants a lot of people who call themselves consultants it's more of a hobby i'd say they work out of their basement or they do this just kind of on the side and right. the difference is our firm is much more established in that we have staff all of which have uh degrees either in architecture architectural history archaeology um you know we have offices in two different uh, cities and, and the difference is we are extremely hands-on and proactive. And instead of a lot of consultants just kind of sit back and, and wait for a phone call or if there's a change order or if there's an amendment to an application, they just kind of file it. We take much more of a hands-on approach in that we're on the job site. We're working with your contractor. We're working with your architect. We're helping you through the local review. Um, you know, we do all the presentations at the state level. Uh, we're the ones negotiating with the, the federal agencies. So, you know, we really try to take um, take control of a lot of these projects, and that way uh, the clients can focus on other things or they can do uh, more than one project at the same time. And, uh, and, and we, we try to mitigate risk. You know, that's the big thing. Right. You know, whether, you know, and that, of course, goes back to your, to your construction loan. I mean, no bank yeah, is going yeah. to just 
you know, lend out money just on a whim, especially talking about millions of dollars. And so um, working with these banks uh, and working with credit investors, you know, to mitigate risk on their behalf. You know, there are quite a few projects where the, where the credits are syndicated and, uh, uh, and we're talking about millions of dollars in, in potential purchases. And that is all predicated on compliance and securing the credits. Right, um, yeah, yeah. So whether it's... Yeah, um, I- Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I sat through maybe five years ago about the tax credits, and I never realized that that banks bought them back, you know, because they have much more passive income than, you know, a developer usually does. And so I I just wanted to say that because I didn't know if people listening would understand that's what you meant. (laughs) Oh, all the time. I mean, the the biggest buyer in credits we're dealing with right now, aside from uh, Bank of America, is uh, Sherwin-Williams Paint. Um, really? They're buying up as many credits yeah. as they can because any corporation, or really, I mean anybody, can buy them. Um, but any right, entity yeah. with, with a lot of income. Um, yeah. But with that comes a whole lot more of a strenuous uh, uh, regulatory and oversight component um, of yeah. having to report to banks and, and deal with those guys. So you know we we do all of that kind of stuff, and um, um, you know it's just a matter of of making sure there's no surprises <laughs> <laughs> as much as much as we can and experience makes that uh, much more um, likely that you'll that you've you've at least seen the problems and can and either know how to how to avoid them or know how to solve them that is exactly right yeah yeah so how can our listeners uh, contact you yeah they can go to our website which is mcnairhp.com that's mcnair h is in historic and p is in preservation.com uh they can contact us on there uh we have a facebook page where we show some of our uh projects and also kind of update uh uh the public on uh tax credit issues in different states and at the national level um so they can find us on facebook find us on the website uh and uh we're always open to uh, coming to different communities and looking at different buildings and seeing how we can help um, bring back to life uh, uh, historic properties. Very good. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate I appreciate your time this morning. No, happy to do it, and uh, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.